Christ is born, you say, Christ is born indeed. Christ is born indeed. So I, I don't have time and I won't take time to delve into this with much depth. If, if you'd like to talk more about it, I'd love, I'd love to continue the conversation. But I think part of what we're up against as Christians in this moment, as people who are trying to follow God, follow the Spirit in, in this particular situation, context, we're up against the way a lot of us have taught to be Christian. And there are kind of three levels of that problem that I want to speak to before we turn to the text. The first is, I think we've all been conditioned to think that if something's true, it's simple. And the simpler it is, or the truer it is, the simpler it is. If something's true, it's simple. And the truer it is, the simpler it is. So that we kind of navigate through life looking for what's simple. I'm going to hold to what's simple. And then that, that's attached to the sense that if it's right, it works. If it's right, it will work. And works means people give money to it and they show up for it. If it's right, it's simple. It's, if it's true, it's simple. If it's right, it works. It brings about results. It looks like success, however you define success. And then third, it's painless. It's painless. Now, here's the problem. All of those things are, from the Christian perspective, untrue. Every single one of them is untrue and profoundly untrue. That the truth is demanding. The truth is someone who has to be known in intimacy, not just over your lifetime, but eternally. The truth is not simple ideas that you wrap words around. The truth is someone, Jesus, that you are always getting to know and who is knowing you. And much of what God does doesn't work. Right? Like this sermon, you're about to see I'm going to perform the work of God. It's not going to work. God is just not that interested in success. He's not anti-success. It's, there's a line in Galatians. Paul says, circumcision doesn't matter and uncircumcision doesn't matter. What matters is faith that works by love. Success doesn't matter and failure doesn't matter. What matters is faith which works by love. And God's way of working just doesn't work like our way of working. That's what we mean when we say his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. That, again, we're in the season of Christmas. We're celebrating that God has come among us as a child. Now, sit with that for just a moment. God comes into the world to set the world right, and the first thing he does is nothing for 30 years. I mean, think about this fact. God lives a life, a human life, a life like yours and mine, and most, overwhelmingly, most of what happens to him for the first 30 years of his life isn't worth commenting on. And I don't just mean that they didn't comment on it. It isn't worth commenting on. Think about this. When Jesus does launch his ministry, and this is true at the beginning of every gospel, when Jesus launches his ministry, what's the response from everyone who knows him? Hold on, man. We know you. And we know your mom. Man, it's such a subtle insult. We know you and we know your mom and we know your brothers. In other words, we've lived with you for 30 years. We haven't seen any of this. Like, who are you? What are you doing? So that means not only was his life hidden from us, but even those who saw it all weren't impressed. God lived among these people and they had no idea. Did you hear it in the gospel today? 
The world existed in him and because of him, and he came into his own, and his own did not know it. Think about this. God is living in this little community, this essentially a fishing village, with a few dozen other people, a few hundred at most. They see him all the time. They hear him. They know the sound of his voice. They know what his hair looks like. They know when he's grumpy. They, they can sense his mood. They, they know him inside and out, they think. It's God, and they have no idea. God's ways are not our ways. And it is certainly not painless. So if we're going to follow Jesus... We are going to have to break free, be broken free of the idea that the truth is simple, that it always works in the terms we understand, and that it's going to be painless. So with that said, let's, let's talk about these texts, which are not simple. Did you notice there's so many strange things in the gospel that we heard today? The first is what John says about Jesus. John testifies, listen to the, the way that the gospel says this, John testified to him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me, or ranks above me because he was before me. He who comes after me ranks above me because he was before me. Now, not exactly the, the way you're supposed to preach. I'm, I'm sure people were bewildered by John. In fact, that's probably why they're drawn to him, because he's so strange. And what is he talking about? He who comes after me ranks above me because he was before me. Now, of course, if we're Orthodox Christians in any sense, no one's truly Orthodox, but if we're Orthodox in any sense, we know that what's being claimed here is that the one who comes after John, who's born after him, is in fact the eternal Son of God. And he, this is God come in the flesh, and that John is acknowledging this in, in, the, in the way that he knows how. But of course, that's not simple. That's not simple. I was reading last night hymns of Ephraim the Syrian, who's this wonderful psalmist from the Syrian tradition. And he has this line in which he says, celebrate that the child is born. Do not investigate how. Celebrate that the child is born. Do not investigate how. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whom many of you will know, when he gave his Christology lectures, he says, the question for Christians is who, not how. Who is this? Not how did it come about? Why? Not because we're afraid of questions, not because we're afraid to think about these things, but because we're talking about mystery. And one of the reasons we're up against it when we talk about Christmas is we're used to dealing in simplicities. And you can't talk in simplicities when you're talking about the infinite becoming finite. You're talking about God becoming a human being. You're talking about the eternal one living a life as a fetus, as a newborn, as a nursing baby, as a toddler, as a boy. As someone who is killed, we're talking about a God who dies, a God who is born, who's conceived and born. That's not simple. And we have to open ourselves up to the mystery that this, these texts are witnessing to. Notice, too, we're told that God, those who believed in him, God gives them the power to become children. Now think for a moment about how strange that statement is. To those who received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave power to become children. Well, children are by definition powerless. You didn't bring yourself into existence. I mean, the child doesn't conceive itself in the womb. 
If you don't know how children get into the womb, I won't tell you right now. You can, you can ask Father Brent after service. <laughs> but I will tell you this, spoiler alert, children don't will themselves into existence. But you didn't will to be born. And you didn't, once you were in existence, once you came to be conceived, you didn't grow yourself up by willing it. Stuff just happened to you. To be a child is to exist at the mercy of things that are happening to you, and you have no say in it. That's what it means to be a child. And this brings us up against another problem we have. Not only are we dealing in simplicities and bad ideas of success and avoiding pain, we also have sentimentalized what it means to be a child. To be a child for us is to be doted on. In our world, to be a child is to be precious and sweet. And of course, children are precious and sweet. I mean, when you first see your child, I remember that moment in the room when our children first burst into the world. I mean, I'm overwhelmed with joy. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I mean, it's not beautiful, but it is beautiful. It's wonderful. And yet, we have to get past that sentimentalization of what it means to be a child. Because to be a child... As wonderful and beautiful as it is, and all those endorphins that are swimming around in your head as a parent when your child is young and you're smelling that sweet baby smell, just understand to be a baby, to be a child, is to exist at the mercy of forces you cannot name, much less control. And here's the wonderful news of the gospel. You're called to become just like that. What Jesus is calling you to What Jesus is calling me to is to become someone who exists at the mercy of forces I cannot name, much less control. Man, this is wonderful, isn't it? Merry Christmas. (laughs) To them who received him, he gave power to become children. He gave power to become powerless. That's what God is doing in you. And it may not seem like it's very successful. If we were to ask your spouse or your children whether or not God's work is effective in your life, I'm not sure what they would say. But God's work is working in you. And what he's doing is making you powerless. He's making you and me like a child. Someone who exists at the mercy of forces we cannot name, much less control. Are you with me? All right, so that was the introduction to the introduction. Really quickly, two, two more words about the other text for the day. We, we heard the gospel, but if you look at the Old Testament reading for the day, it's Jeremiah 37, or 31, 7 and following, and, and you really should read it, because there's this a, a, a kind of astounding line in the middle of that passage in which God says, he calls Israel Jacob, which is, of course, Israel, Israel's name before, he's called Israel, And he's talking about now all of Israel's children, the whole nation. He calls them Jacob and says, rejoice because I'm gathering you back, right? Out of exile, I'm gathering you back home, I'm restoring you. And in the middle of that, God says through Jeremiah, I have become a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. I'm just going to tease this and you can study it out on your own. This is a remarkable line because God is taking on the role of Joseph. You remember Jacob has Joseph, right? Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then late in life, when Jacob is dying, Joseph takes his two sons to his father to be blessed. Do you remember this story? This is the crossing of the hand story. So in this passage, God is taking on the identity of Joseph. 
and saying, I have made or I have become a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. God is reversing the order. God is becoming the son who as the son makes the father a father and then makes Ephraim, who's the younger, a firstborn. This is not simple. This is mystery. This is a witness to the ways in which God makes us who we are by making it so that we care for him. I'm going to say that again. God makes us who we are by making it so that we have to care for him. And this is one of the ways in which when you've kind of been taught that to be a child is to be doted on, you start to imagine that to be a child of God is to be doted on, in which God is just always blessing you. And what blessing you means is giving you the stuff you want as soon as you want it, right? I know this doesn't happen with your kids, but my kids still, you know, they'll, they'll be sitting in the room on some electronic, watching electronic while another electronic near them is, is making noise, and they'll yell out, Mom, I need some chocolate milk. <laughs> and not to be cynical, but that's what the way a lot of us live the Christian life. Like that's a metaphor for how a lot of us live. We're sitting there overwhelmed with stimuli. God, I need this. And God's just not that interested in doting on us. Now hear, hear this rightly. Hear this in the context of, all the dozens and hundreds of sermons you've had to hear from me and from everyone else in this community. Of course, there are ways in which you're precious to God and God delights in you, and I don't mean to bracket out any of that. But hear me, God's way of caring for you as his child is by becoming someone who's dependent upon you caring for him. That's what Christmas is about. The way in which God cares for all of us is by becoming this little babe who would die if you don't feed and clothe him. Mary, if you don't give milk to that baby, he's going to starve to death. Well, he's God, yes. And he will starve to death if you don't give him milk. He's going to die if you leave him out in the cold. You're going to have to swaddle him. You're going to have to put him in the manger. You're going to have to care for him because if you don't care for him, this will die. And in doing that, notice how God, by making himself dependent upon us, is training us how to be who we're called to be. Listen to these words from Thomas Merton, who, if you haven't read Merton, I, I highly encourage you to. This is from 1956, a little piece that he did on the nativity. The child that lies in the manger, helpless and abandoned to the love of his creatures, dependent entirely upon them to be fed, clothed, and sustained, remains the creator and ruler of the universe. Yet in this human nature of his, he wills to be helpless that we may take him into our care. He wills to be helpless that we may take him into our care. How does he give us power to become children? By making himself a child so that we have to attend to him. We have to attend to Jesus the way Mary and Joseph had to attend to Jesus. We have to give him our care. In the New Testament reading for the day, which is Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, Paul, in the middle of that passage, says, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Christ. So before the foundations of the world, again, this is not simple, 
Before the foundations of the world, he predestined us to be in Christ. Now, think about this. Christ is the name of a human being. Jesus is Mary's baby. So before anything exists, Jesus, a human being, is the one in whom God decides to make you exist. Don't ask how. Just know that it's true. That's the mystery of God's decision in Christ. In Christ, you were chosen before the foundation of the world, and you were chosen to become a child. You were chosen to become a child in the way that he is a child. So, the wonder of Christmas is that God the Son becomes a child of his mother. He becomes Mary's baby and shares the same relation to his mother that he eternally has with his father. This is the mystery of Christmas, the wonder of Christmas. God the Son, who, this is John 1, the one who's in the Father's embrace. No one has seen God at any time, but the one who's in the Father's embrace has made him known. Meaning, the Son eternally has this dependency, this intimacy, this communion with the Father, this readiness and openness, eternally. And then he comes and becomes a little child who has that same relation to Mary. So he has the same relation to his mother that he eternally has to the Father. And the promise of Christmas, that's the wonder, the promise of Christmas is that God the Son became a child of his mother so that you and I might become children of his Father. So that he comes and takes the same relation with Mary that he has with the Father so that we can have the same relation with the Father that he has with Mary. We are meant to have the Son's relationship to the Father. This is not simple. It's mystery. It's not painless, but it is transfiguring. It doesn't work, but it will make you holy. And the call of Christmas then, the, the task of Christmas, is to become true children of the Father by growing down into the Son's childlikeness. I was talking yesterday with Bishop Ed about, about this talk, and this morning he sent me a text that I think is exactly right. We were talking about what is it that God celebrates about childlikeness, and because we've sentimentalized child, childlikeness and childhood, I think we tend to think that what, when Jesus says, you must become like a little child, he, must, you, he means you must be precious and innocent. Listen, children are not precious and innocent. <laughs> right? That, there's a great line from a comedian who's now uh, been canceled, and rightly so, but this was still a great line. I'll assume he stole it from someone else. He said, when I was young, and I would be out in public, and I would see a, a parent angry with a child, I would think, my God, what's wrong with that person? It's a child. And now that I have children of my own, and I see a parent angry with a child, I think, my God, what did that little child do to that man or woman? Right? Like, there's a way in which we think that Jesus is pointing to this child as this mark of preciousness and sweetness, but that's not the point Jesus is making. In the ancient world, there's not sentimentality about children. Children are slaves. Children are regarded as slaves. So when Jesus says, you must become like a little child, not just a child, but a little child, the point is not you must become innocent and sweet. The point is you must become helpless and needy without shame. You must become helpless and needy without shame. 
In some ways, time itself teaches us this. Nature itself teaches us this. If you've ever lived with anyone who's gotten old, you know that the older they get, the more childlike they become. My grandmother, who was such a vital part of my life, toward the end of her life, became, she, she developed Alzheimer's, dementia, and most of the last few months of her life, she was kind of out of it, fantasizing that there was this very wealthy man who would come around every day in a limousine to take her out for drinks, even though she didn't drink and there was no wealthy man. And one of the last days that she was with us, and the last day that I got to see her, she had two moments of clarity that I'll carry with me until I die. One of them was, we're, we're sitting there, I'm, we're outside her house, and I've been with her for a few hours, and she's been out of it. I'm just holding her hand. And suddenly she turned to me, and if you've ever been around anyone who suffers with dementia, you know what that, you can tell on the face, like you can see on the countenance, they're there suddenly. And she said to me, she said, Criff, that's what she called me, Criff, I'm not doing okay, am I? And I was like, no, Nan, you're not doing so well right now. And she's like, all this stuff I'm talking about, I'm just making it up, aren't I? I was like, well, it seems like you are. Yeah, a lot of it, they don't think it's happening. And then she said this, and she got this huge smile, and she said, well, if you're going to lose your mind, it seems to me like you ought to have fun with it. (laughs) If you're going to lose your mind, you ought to have fun with it. And then a few hours later, I was praying with her, and she again had this moment of clarity, and she said to me, You know I've been afraid of dying all of my life. But now I am dying, and I'm at peace with it. Now that playfulness is absolutely the heart of that peacefulness. Her playfulness, if you're going to lose your mind, you might as well enjoy it, is what gave her peace in the face of death. Because what is a child? Someone who exists at the mercy of forces they cannot name, much less control. So nature teaches you that. Grace teaches you that. The work of the Spirit in your life and mine is about bringing us to the point in which we can yield to the fact that we are not in control of anything. Not the president. Certainly not disease. Not what our children decide to do. Not what our church does. Not what the communists do or the Marxists, not what your neighbor does, not what the Black Lives Matter movement does, you're not in control of anything. I'm not in control of anything. I mean, yeah, I am in control of some things, but all of that can be taken away from me in a moment without my say. All the stuff I can control, it's because I've been granted some measure, some space to take control, but that can be gone in a moment. I can lose my mind in a moment. And if I want to be at peace, I have to be playful in that childlike way in which I yield to the fact I'm meant to be a child. God becomes a child. I'm almost done. In in Matthew's gospel, go ahead and put up the image if you would, guys. I'm going to share just a moment on this image. In Matthew's gospel, I was reading this morning, there's this remarkable passage. It's, it's, it's amazing what happens when you read scripture and pay attention. <laughs> and it's, there's this line about the Magi coming, and Herod says to them, when you found the child, 
come back and tell me where he is because I want to adore him too, right? It's very cynical. And the, the line in the gospel, it's almost a, a kind of throwaway line. The line in the gospel is, and when the Magi had heard Herod, they came to see the child. And this morning as I read that line, it's like the Holy Spirit slapped me, nonviolently, pushed me with, pay attention to that. They heard what Herod said, but they're looking for the child. I think this is one way of thinking about what our problem is right now. We're looking at Herod. We're looking at Herod. And Herod is the, the face of all the noise of the world around us. Whatever news you're watching, whatever social media feed is, is floating in front of you, whatever it is, that, the rumors that are swirling around you, the gossip that's swirling around you, the fear that's internalized in you, all of that is Herod. And if you look at Herod, you will lose yourself. The Magi hear him, but they're looking for the child. They hear what Herod says, but they're, they're not looking at him. They're looking at Jesus. And if you want to find that peace that my grandmother found in the face of death, if you want to find that playfulness that's in the child, look at the child Jesus. There's so much I want to say, but I, I really am going to stop and let Father Paul and Bishop Ed and Mother Janice and whoever else is going to follow up deal with this. But look at, you see this image, this is by David Jones, who's a Welsh poet and artist. And this is, this was originally a woodcut. So this is a drawing based on the woodcut. And you see Jesus who's about two years old at this point. He's a toddler. He's not an infant. He's a toddler. And Mary is carrying milk. The title of this piece is Our, Our Lady is a Milkmaid. He's about two. Does anybody know what happens around two years old for Jesus? from the gospel stories. This is the coming of the Magi, and this is the slaughter of the innocents. Look at Mary's face. She's not exactly happy. She's not smiling. She's not laughing. And I, we don't know for sure, but I, when I see this image because of the time, the age that Jesus is, it makes me think that this is the day that they've gotten news. They've gotten the dream. Joseph has gotten the dream about what's about to happen with Herod. The Magi have come and left, and God wakes Joseph up with a dream and says, get to Egypt, and don't come back until Herod is dead, or until I tell you. Don't, don't, don't come back. Go. And as I'm imagining it, that's why we don't see Joseph. He's in the house packing. He's getting things ready. They got to go to Egypt. And Mary has come to the barn to get the milk they're going to take with them. She's already got, gotten the milk. And Jesus, this little baby who doesn't have many words yet, mama and papa or whatever it is he knows, senses her anxiety. And what does he do? He waddles and toddles towards her and says, pick me up. This little baby can feel his mom's fear. And he throws his hands up. And what strikes me about that, he's got his hands outstretched. We know the way this story ends, with his hands outstretched. But already, this Christ child is saying, help me. Help me. And what the wonder of it is, by him letting her help him, he's giving grace to her. He's, this is God. This, this little body here, this naked, shiny butt, right? 
That's God's shiny butt. And that helplessness is God's helplessness. But it's a helplessness that helps you and helps me. And here's, here's the wonder of it. This is the mystery that these texts today keep pushing us to. The only way for you and me to actually get in touch with our own Christ-likeness is by engaging the helplessness of people around us as if it were Christ's own helplessness. Not because we can fix anything. There's, there's, you're going to have to go to Egypt. I mean, this is part of what it means for God to be a child. Jesus is getting yanked around all over the place. I mean, he's getting taken to Egypt. But in that process, he's giving grace to those who are helping him. If you want to grow down into Christ-likeness, if you want to find that place, playfulness and peacefulness that my grandmother found, you have to realize that there are people all around you who are in that position right there. They're naked, they're needy, they're helpless, and you can't fix it. But what you can do is embrace, be present. What you can do is be with them in their helplessness. I think the hardest thing to learn as an adult, this is one of the things that Bishop said to me in the text this morning, children are inherently needy, but tragically, we often abort, this is the word that Bishop used, we abort our own neediness in order to be adults, and that is cancer for faith. Those are his words. We abort our inherent neediness in order to be adults, and it kills our faith. So here's the word of the Lord to us this morning. You're powerless. I made you that way. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. And to those people who are around you who are powerless, you can't fix them. Dear God, don't try to fix them. But you can be present to them, just as powerless as they are. And in that, be open to the God who makes all things right and good in his time. Amen?